This morning, I'd like to uh, share a little story about when I first began uh, um, as a married man, uh, something that happened to me early on. Uh, we lived here on the church campus. Some of you may not know, but here in Carmichael, there's uh, a couple acre campus that the church sits on. And uh, when I first got married to my wife and became a youth pastor here on staff, uh, we actually lived in a section of the property that we no longer have. We sold it off um, a few years after that time. But um, it was a, a little apartment that my wife and I moved into, and, and uh, we were excited to start life out together uh, here living on the church campus, and it was a real fun environment. Um, some of you guys who have been around a while remember those times, remember those days. But one of the, one of the evenings when we were uh, about to go to bed, I remember uh, kind of just locking up, making sure all the doors were locked, and I, I happened to, the sun had just uh, gone down, and it was, I think it was summertime, and uh, I remember looking outside, and um, I, I, I was shocked by what I saw, um, because what I saw really put a fright into me. It was really scary, and uh, well, let's just, uh, I, I think we have a picture of what I saw. Yes, it was that. It was, it was that right here in Carmichael, I saw that image um, outside my window. And as a, as a man to protect my wife, I rushed back to the bedroom and I warned my wife. I was, I was actually very scared, and, uh, I, but I, I tried to act very manly and I told her, babe, I just saw a bear in our backyard. And uh, she, needless to say, didn't believe me, nor did she have the appropriate level of fright going through her body I think she had some sort of skepticism and doubt. I don't know why. I mean, I clearly saw what I saw. And so I, I tried to persuade her not to go out there. It was dangerous. And so um, she decided that she was going to brave the conditions and go ahead and go check it out for herself. And uh, I kind of watched her thinking, that's the end of my wife. She's going to die. The bear's going to get her. Um, but she um, boldly went out there and uh, she actually went to the door, and I hear the door open. I'm still in my bedroom. I'm freaked out, and I can hear the back door open, and then a, a minute later, she comes back, and she says, honey, I saw what was out there, and it's not a bear, and this is what she claims that she saw. I, that is not what I saw. I don't, I don't know what happened to the bear, but it was clearly a bear that I saw, and so I, I'm just not sure what happened that day, but uh, my wife you know, said it was just a dog. And so, so but it made me think about uh, a question that I wanted to ask this morning, and that is, how can we, two different people claim to see two different things when they're looking at the same thing? And, and, and that's something that I really want to, to challenge us all with this morning is uh, there's one truth, one reality, and yet there's so many different opinions or so many different things that we think about this one truth um, or reality. And so um, maybe it's uh, a perspective thing. Like, look at this slide here. Um, maybe, it's, maybe it's your perspective. You know, you have the one guy on the one side, he thinks he sees a nine, and the other guy thinks he sees a six. Maybe it's just based on our perspective. Or, or maybe, it's, uh, maybe the thing is just too confusing, what we're trying to look at. Maybe, maybe it's playing tricks on our mind. Like, like this next one. Like, I mean, is it three or is it four? Are there three things there or are there four things there? I, 
I'm not sure. I mean, they're both looking at the same thing, and yet there's two different conclusions, two different things that they're thinking about this reality. Um, I think many of you have seen this other one, uh, you know, the, the elephant. Maybe you've, you're familiar with this. But you have the blind men who are investigating for themselves what this reality is. What is this object? And so they're able to go up and touch it and feel it and be up close and try and determine what it is that they're discerning. What is this truth? And yet each person comes away with a different opinion, a different thought on this reality that exists. Some, maybe it's based on our limited experience or our rush to judgment. Uh, maybe, maybe it's about stepping back, removing our bias, and seeking to get a full picture of this reality or this truth. You see, there's, there's so much confusion, and there's more opinions, varying opinions surrounding who Jesus of Nazareth is or was than any other figure in human history. And for good reason. There has never been a more important figure in human history, a more important person than Jesus. If you consider the claims of Jesus, if you read through the claims of Jesus in the Bible, you might come to this conclusion. And it's, it's true. It's impossible to be wrong about Jesus and to be right with God. It's impossible to come to a different conclusion about the reality of who Jesus is and still claim to be right with the God. And that's important. If you ask anyone in our world of nearly seven plus billion people who he is, you would probably get an opinion, but you probably wouldn't get much agreement. Each of the major religions of the world try to define Jesus. Secular humanism tries to dismiss him, and Christians all over the world delight themselves in him. So today, I'm, I'm going to invite you, I'm going to challenge you, I'm going to encourage you. If you're watching this today, wherever you might be, take a step back. Open up your mind and allow God to turn on the light so that you can get a clear picture of who Jesus is. Our goal at Crossroads in the year 2020 is in our theme for the year is to bring Jesus into focus. And that's exactly what we're going to do with this passage that we come to today in the book of Luke. Throughout 2020, we're looking at the gospel of Luke. And we're asking to determine, Jesus, show yourself to us. Who are you? Luke had written an orderly account, eyewitnesses. He had interviewed them. He had tried, sought to understand the truth about who Jesus of Nazareth was and is. And he wanted to write a record for all of us to be able to go to, to examine, to discover a truth that can be life-changing. Our goal this morning is to bring Jesus into focus. Will you join me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for giving us a record, a reliable account. God, not just one, but four in your word, the Bible, from different perspectives, but all focusing on this one reality of who Jesus is. And God, I ask that wherever someone might be watching this morning, God, they, and I don't know where they stand with, your, with, with Jesus, I just pray that they will have a willing heart to open up and just really receive 
what you want to show and, and share this morning about who Jesus is. God, we ask that you remove any distraction, any bias, anything that we can't focus in clearly so that we can get a clear picture of who Jesus is and that it might change our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9. We're going to begin at verse 18 in just a minute, but I want to provide some context for our passage this morning. You see, this is kind of, in, the, in, in Luke's gospel, this is kind of a climax of a period of time where he has shown Jesus' ministry in a region called Galilee. It was the northern region of Israel, and he had traveled around the lake, around the Sea of Galilee, back and forth, from one town to another, performing miracles, teaching, revealing who he was, showing, having personal relationships with his disciples and with others, revealing himself to the world. And so Luke is really coming to this, this passage this morning with the idea that you have read chapters 1 through 8, that you have been journeying along with the, 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 the disciples, and that you have been able to see what Jesus has been doing and what he has been saying. And in this passage, it kind of brings to a, a culmination all of this time in, in the ministry of Galilee. And right after this, as a matter of fact, in, in Luke 9.51, we read that from this point forward, Jesus intends to head to Jerusalem. You see, the rest of the book is going to focus on Jesus moving in the direction of his ultimate mission in life. The ultimate reason that he came was to seek and save those who were lost. And so he had to head to Jerusalem because it was appointed to him to face his destiny there. We just celebrated Easter last week, Resurrection Sunday. He rose from the dead. But where was it that he gave his life? It was in Jerusalem. And so we see through the rest of this account of the Gospel of Luke, a movement of heading to that final destination to fulfill who he had been called to be. Matthew and Mark provide other gospel accounts, and they're parallel accounts to what we read here in Luke. They record that right as we begin today's passage, that Jesus had moved to a new region. This region is called Caesarea Philippi. It was actually named and established under Caesar Augustus. And there was a tetrarch named Philip who had established this outpost for Rome. And they, and they had named it after those two, two men in honor of them. Caesarea Philippi. Now where was this place? It was a little bit north of the Sea of Galilee. It was on the Jordan River right at the foot of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon being the most majestic mountain in all of Israel. Stood over 9,000 feet tall towering over the valley and could be seen all the way to where the Dead Sea is in, in south of Jerusalem. And so this mountain, this place was a beautiful city, a beautiful town. And Jesus, after all of this ministry he had done in Galilee, his desire was to take some time of retreat. And the Gospels record that he had retreated away with just his disciples to this small town trying to avoid some of the crowds, trying to, trying to pull back and really just recenter himself, knowing the mission that lie ahead. And so he spent his time in prayer, and he spent his time with his disciples, his close disciples. 
And this is the context in which we find our story this morning. Join me in Luke chapter 9, verse 18. While he was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist. Others, Elijah. Still others, that one of the ancient prophets has come back. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? This morning, my title is just that. Jesus asks this important question, not only of his disciples then, but of all of us today. Who do you say that I am? Now, this morning, we're broadcasting, being in this situation where we have this coronavirus and this lockdown and this quarantine. And, and so I wanted to try and give those of you who are in the live audience an opportunity to interact this morning with this service. And so if you're following along with Facebook, I actually have my phone here. I'm following the feed. And uh, in just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to be heard to, um, to kind of chime in here as to answering a little bit of that question. What I want you to focus on this morning and maybe give some feedback through Facebook Live if you would, is who have you experienced Jesus to be? Maybe it's recently during this whole quarantine thing. Or maybe it's that, you know, through your life you've had encounters, you've had experiences with Jesus of Nazareth. Who have you experienced him to be? Who have you found him to be? What qualities does he have? that you've experienced personally. You see, because what we have in this context is, imagine the disciples, they had traveled with Jesus. They had experienced ministry with Jesus. Think about the things they had just done. They had seen Jesus heal those who could not walk, and they could walk again. They had seen people who were sick with diseases that could not be cured, and they were healed. The demon-possessed were set free of their chains and their bondage. And the dead were raised to life again. Imagine what they had seen Jesus do. Bread and fish were multiplied to feed thousands and provide plenty of leftovers. And a mission to declare that the kingdom of God had arrived was given to them to go and proclaim in all the surrounding towns and villages. They had experienced Jesus. So I'm going to go to our Facebook Live and, and I'm going to see some of the responses that we're getting on that question. Courtney, thank you for your contribution. You've seen him to be a comforter. A comforter. Marianne Livingston, protector. Allie Howding, a miracle worker. He's performed miracles and you've experienced that. Bobby Capon, You've seen him, the Christ of God. Barbara Del Rio, faithful. Heather Light, oh, you're just watching. Sorry, Heather. Pam Henderson, sorry, bear with me. I'm, this is a new experience for me as well. My comfort and my protector. Pam Hendren, thank you, Pam. Jan Gutierrez, a holy savior. Connie, lover of my soul. Dolly Cantrell, ever-present friend. Marcella Pearson, as a child I lost hope and he restored hope to me. Heather, 
She's now answering the question, teacher and love. Wow. Really good responses that we're getting. Jesus is not just some sort of idea. No, Jesus is someone that is there, present in our lives. And he has given us opportunities to experience his love. And what he, is, what he did back then, he is still doing today in lives. So he asked the question in verse 20, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter, being the, the big mouth of the group, I can relate to Peter. I have the big mouth in our house. My wife can tell you that. Um, he speaks for the whole group here. He's the first to answer, it seems. And he answers this. Peter answered, God's Messiah. Messiah meaning the anointed one. The one who would be king. The one who was promised of Israel to be their deliverer and their king. Jesus has seen Jesus to be the Messiah, the promised one of God. Verse 21, But he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised to the third day. Boy, this is very interesting. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus says, you're right, Peter. You're right. It hasn't been revealed to you by anyone except for, for God in heaven of who I am. He's revealed that through his Holy Spirit into your heart. And you've answered correctly, I am the Messiah. Peter had the right answer. Peter knew the truth. He had experienced Jesus firsthand. And yet, why, did, why in the world would Jesus then go on to say, don't tell a soul? Don't say anything to anyone about this. What gives? Why would Jesus not want them to share the good news that he is the Messiah? Well, we need to understand a few things about the context in which Jesus was ministering. You see, the teachers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, those who were the teachers of the law of that day, they had poisoned the waters when it comes to this concept of the Messiah. They had been teaching that a Messiah was going to come, yes. But that Messiah was not going to do the things that Jesus knew the Messiah truly had to do. Namely, give his life. Sacrifice his life for the sins of the world. No, they thought, no, he's going to be a deliverer. He's going to be a king. He's going to rescue us from the oppression of the government of Rome. There were all kinds of ideas out there, and there were all kinds of notions about the Messiah that the people, the crowds, had been poisoned as to who he would be and what he would do for them. And Jesus didn't want them to think that that's what he was going to do and be. No, he wanted them to experience who he was and the truth of what the Messiah would do firsthand. And so he told them, hey, don't spread the word yet. Wait until I die and when I am rose again, when I'm risen from the dead, then you can proclaim me as the Messiah. Because then people will understand truly who the Messiah is and what he came to be and do. He wanted them to have a clear picture before the proclamation was made. 
Verse 23, then he said to them all, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. What does this mean? What is this idea that we need to deny ourselves? To pick up a cross daily and follow him. Is that, is that a literal thing? Should we all be buying crosses that we carry around or, or wear around our neck? Is that the way we become a follower of Jesus? What does this mean? No, Jesus was telling us that if we want to be his disciple, if we want to follow Jesus, we must identify with him in surrender, in suffering, and in sacrifice. You cannot crucify yourself. You cannot go to the cross. That isn't what he meant for you to do physically. But he wants you in your spirit to lay down your rights. To surrender over who you're living life for. You're no longer living for yourself. You're living for Him. That's what He wants. He wants you to identify yourself with the one who went before you to the cross. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, really talks about this. It says, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. We are to lay our lives down before Jesus. That's how we become his follower. Listen to what he says in verse 24. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. What does that mean? That means if you want to live your life for yourself, you want to save your life for all the things you have in mind, you just want to go in your own direction and pursue pleasure and power and, and fame, whatever it is you're pursuing in life. You want an easy life. He says, yeah, you can pursue all of those things, but in the end, your life is going to be lost. It's going to be wasted. It's going to come to nothing. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What does that mean? That means give your life to Jesus. That means lay your life down before him at his feet. A few weeks ago, we saw two people who came to him with needs, and both of them came and bowed at the feet of Jesus. Jesus wants us to surrender ourselves. Let, let's be honest. Our life was created by him. He just wants us to acknowledge that. He just wants us to give our life back to him. Because he loved us, and he wants to give us life to the full. Verse 25, what is a man benefited if he gain, gains the whole world, yet loses or forfeits himself? You see, you can go after the fame and the possessions and the power and the money, all of it. And you could be successful. You could get it all. And yet at the end of the day, not anything this world could offer you is a substitution for being able to buy one soul and rescue one life from the consequences of sin. From the things that we've done to offend a holy and righteous God. Not one thing that we can do. We can't buy our way. We can't seem to impress God in a way that makes him go, well, I guess that's good enough. No. 
It's an offense to why he sent his son to take our place on that cross. Verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and that of the Father and the holy angels. Wow, I love this, what Jesus says here. Because he says, hey guys, when is it that you should identify yourselves with me? And how should you identify yourselves with me? He says, you should not be ashamed of me. You know, sometimes I, I'm, a, I'm a dad, I'm a father. Sometimes I do things, and, I, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a way that my children in my home are ashamed of me. And they're ashamed to acknowledge that, that I'm really connected to them. And I can understand that, because there's times where I look the same way at them. So I get it. I get it how we can feel that way towards one another. But at the end of the day, man, it just feels like, wow, when, when they acknowledge, yeah, that's my dad. Despite my craziness, despite the things that I do that might make them feel a little, like, ashamed, they acknowledge that I'm their dad. And, that, and there's such a love there. There's such a, an affirmation that, wow, there's, there's a bond there that can't be broken. And that's what Jesus wants us to do with him. You know, in this world, it's not always popular to identify ourselves with Jesus. Like I said earlier, there's all kinds of misperceptions about who Jesus is. And yet, Jesus is asking us to identify himself with him now. Because if we don't do it now, he says, if you disown me, I'm going to disown you. When I stand before my Father in heaven with the holy angels. He uses the term son of man. Why does he use this term son of man? I want to I draw you back to, to what the son of man meant in their minds. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. As I kept watching, Daniel has a vision. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was convened, and the books were opened. Wow, Daniel's having a vision here of what it looks like to stand before the throne of God. This is the description that Jesus has just given of a, of a reality that's going to come where we're going to stand before the throne of God and the books will be open and there will be judgment. Verse 11, Daniel said, I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their authority to rule was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a son of man. There's that title, son of man. I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, and was escorted before him. And he was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom 
so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Listen, the, the disciples standing there knew this passage. They understood the Son of Man. It was a picture of a Messiah figure that was going to come and have authority to rule and reign. And here it was, Jesus saying, I am the Son of Man. And when I come into my Father's kingdom, don't be ashamed of me now, or I'll be ashamed of you then. Are you ashamed of Jesus? Are you ashamed of identifying with Him in your life? Revelation 14, this is a picture of what's to come. If we're in the church today, this is our hope. Revelation 14, verse 14, picks up this vision that, that started back in Daniel. Listen to what it says. Then I looked, and there was a white cloud, and one like the Son of Man was seated on the cloud, with a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out from the sanctuary, crying out in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the time to reap has come since the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the one seated on the cloud, the Son of Man, swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Amen. That's a day that I'm looking forward to, the day when Jesus brings us into his presence. And it is a good day for those who are part of that harvest. And I want you, if you're watching this morning, to be a part of that first harvest that's depicted here in Revelation. Because the, the following verses depict a second harvest. And that harvest is a harvest where those that are part of that harvest are thrown into the, the winepress of God's wrath. There's a judgment day coming. I don't want you to be unprepared. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. Who do you say that he is? Verse 27 of our passage in Luke chapter 9. I tell you the truth. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus tells his disciples that there's some that are in the midst of his group, his gathering. Remember, he had, he had withdrawn from the masses. Now he's with his twelve. He's with a small group of disciples. And he says, some of you that are with me right now will not even see death before you see the kingdom of God. The other Matthew and Mark, Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, 28, this same passage was recorded this way. I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Wow, I'm sure at that moment the disciples were like, yeah, I want to I see that. I'm so excited. When are you going to start ruling and reigning? And they were excited to see that event. And Jesus assured them, yes, you are going to get to experience that. You're going to get to see that. But maybe not in the way that they thought. You see, in every single passage where that is recorded, the very next thing that follows is an event known as the transfiguration. Verse 28 in Luke. About eight days after these words, 
If you read in Matthew and Mark, it says six days later. So how do we reconcile that Luke says about eight days later and Matthew and Mark say six days later? Well, it's very simple. Luke considers the day that he said it and the day where he goes up on the mountain and shows his glory to them as counting those days, whereas Matthew and Mark says there were six days in between. That's really the reconciliation. Sometimes they would record a day where um, something happened as part of the time frame, and other times they would ignore that. And so it's really saying the same thing, but it's about a week later. He took along Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Matthew and Mark says it was a high mountain. And it just only makes sense that Mount Hermon is right there, near the little town that they have retreated to. So likely, it was up on this mountain. I don't know if they climbed all the way to the top, 9,000 feet to the summit. I don't know, but they went up the mountain. We certainly know that. Verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. In Matthew and Mark, it says that he was transformed or transfigured. Literally in the Greek, it's metamorpho. And we all know that the word that we get from that Greek word is metamorphosis. There was some sort of change that took place. You remember the caterpillar goes into the the little cocoon and it comes out a beautiful butterfly. It's the same creature, but now it's showing its beauty. And, and what it was created to be. This is the same with Jesus. Jesus had, Philippians chapter 2 says that he humbled himself. He took on the form of a human body. And he was found in the flesh. He didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. And he humbled himself even to death, death on a cross. That's the description of our Lord Jesus. And so, yes, in the form that the disciples knew him, they knew him kind of as the caterpillar. But he had allowed that because they couldn't stand to be in the presence of God. They would be overwhelmed. You remember Moses up on the mountain. He had gone into a cloud that enveloped the mountain, and there was thunder and lightning. And the people that were at the base of the mountain, they just shook in fear. They didn't want to approach If we saw God for who he truly is, we would be scared. We're limited creatures. We can't handle that. And so Jesus took on our form so that he could come and be with us. John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have beheld the glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. Jesus wanted to show his disciples who he truly was. And this was the moment where he did so. He showed the true authority, the power that he is God. Here on the mountain, verse 30, suddenly two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Wow, Moses, the man who they just venerated. They they just loved this guy. He was the hero of their faith because he had led them out of Egypt. He was God's servant. He had written the first five books of their Torah. And they just loved this man, Moses. And Elijah, he was like the prophet of prophets. He was so amazing that God didn't even allow him to die. 
just took them home in a chariot of fire to heaven. And here were these two men. We don't know what kind of form they were appeared in, but it's clear that they could be recognized. And they were in a glorified state. Verse 31, they appeared in glory and were speaking of his death. Literally in the Greek, it's exodus. The word there is exodus. They're speaking of his departure. His departing this earth and returning back to heaven. And the passage way to do that was through his death in Jerusalem that was still coming up. They were speaking with him. Moses, Elijah, Jesus hanging out up there on that mountain, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Verse 31. Verse 32, Peter and those with him were in a deep sleep. Now, I'm just imagining being a disciple at this point. Number one, you're exhausted, man. You've been doing ministry with Jesus. You've been going all over the place, back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. He sent you out to all the towns and surrounding villages. You've been just, just swamped with ministry. I've had weeks, I've been a youth pastor, I've had weeks where I'm with at camps and retreats and, and it's non-stop, non-stop activity with teenagers. And they always out, outlive me, outpace me. And you get to the end of that, you come back home and you just want to crash. That's where the disciples were at. But instead of being able to crash, he takes them up a high mountain. Can you imagine? I've climbed Half Dome. I got to the top and I just laid on the ground, exhausted from the effort that it took to get there. So the disciples, they were wasted. They were exhausted, mentally, spiritually, and physically exhausted. And here's where Jesus decides to reveal his his power and his authority and who he really is to them. They were in a deep sleep, verse 32. And when they became fully awake, they finally start to wake up. All this activities happening around them, they're, they're, they're starting to say, what is that? What is going on? What is that bright light? What is going on here? And they begin to wake up. When they become fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were standing with him. And as the two men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make the three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah not knowing what he said. You know, Luke puts in that little phrase there, not knowing what he said. Why? Because what Peter just did was a huge error. He had just equated Jesus with Moses and Elijah, as, they, as though they were just equals. As though Moses and Elijah created beings were equal with the one who was the creator. Imagine the mistake that Peter had made just in his excitement. He had misspoke. But God the Father was about to clear things up. Verse 34, while he was saying this, a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. Again, this picture of what took place on Mount Sinai back when God gave the law. This was happening again. This cloud comes into the scene. They became afraid as they entered the cloud. Verse 35, then a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. You see, God the Father wanted to make it clear to every disciple there that this man, Jesus, was his Messiah. He was the chosen one. And we are to listen to him above all the other voices, all the other noise. No matter how we 
respect the opinion of someone that we look up to, admire, a human being, we are still to put Jesus, elevate Jesus' voice above them all. God wants us to know that. That in the midst of our season that we're experiencing now, what voice are you listening to? Who is it that you are going to to discern truth, to discern what's important, to discern what to do with your fears, your anxiety? Where are you turning? God wants you to turn to the voice of Jesus. Are we listening to his voice? Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. The disciples would have known this psalm, this messianic psalm. I will declare the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. God made it clear, this is my son, as he said that of Jesus on the mountain. Listen to him. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Another messianic passage. It says this, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one. Do you remember the words there from the Father? The chosen one. Listen to him. He's chosen of me. My chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. These are the words of Moses at the end of his life. They had, they had, like I said, they really looked up to Moses. He was an amazing prophet of God. Moses himself says, The Lord your God will one day raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And here was Jesus, the one that God had raised up. And he wanted, he wants our attention. He wants us to be listening to his voice. Verse 36, after the voice had spoken, only Jesus was found. I'm going to read that one more time. After the voice had spoken, everything else disappeared. Everything else was gone. Everything else was removed. And the only thing that was left was Jesus. You think God was trying to tell them something? I do. You know, in the midst of our craziness in life, in the midst of our chaos, Sometimes we need that. We need everything else removed and we need to see only Jesus. Amen? We need to be able to focus on what Jesus, who He is, and what He's called us to be for Him. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. I love this passage. And I'm going to end with this before I ask a few questions as we close. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter writing this of this experience that he had had up on the mountain. For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Imagine how this just changed everything for Peter. He had seen Jesus for who he truly is. And one day, you and I will see Jesus for who he truly is. The majesty of heaven. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, a voice came to him from the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son. I take delight in him. 
And we, have, we heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. You will do well to pay attention to it. This morning as we wrap up, I want to ask us all. I've been considering these same questions this week as I've been preparing, as I've been studying. But if you're watching this, I want you to think about these questions because no one except for you can answer these questions. These are personal questions. These are important questions. Number one, have you embraced Jesus as your Messiah? Is He your hope for deliverance? You see, Jesus said when Peter answered, you are the Messiah, Jesus. You are the anointed one. You're the promise of God. You're the only one that can fulfill all that needs to be fulfilled to rescue us, to deliver us from our sins. Jesus said, you're right, Peter. You're right. That's what I want everyone to recognize. You've recognized it. That's great. But you don't fully understand what I'm about to have to endure at the cross for your sins and for the sins of the world. You see, He died for our sins, according to Scripture. And He was raised three days later, according to Scripture. We don't have a Savior. We don't have a Messiah that doesn't have power to overcome death. No, we have a risen Savior and a risen Messiah. Number two, have you encountered Jesus as your Savior? Is He your peace in the desperate days that you face? You see, I'm not worried about all the circumstances around me. I'm not even worried about this virus, whether or not it would kill me. Yeah, I don't want it. I don't want anyone else to get it. But I'm not living in fear. I'm not living in anxiety. Why? Because I recognize that Jesus is my peace. Jesus is my peace. Death is just a doorway to heaven for me because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I want you to enjoy that assurance as well. I want you to have the peace that comes from knowing Jesus as Savior. And number three, have you elevated Jesus as your Lord? You see, Jesus gets to call the shots. He's God and we're not. Have you surrendered your life to Him? Is He your guide through all the disarray that you face? I pray this morning that if you don't know Him as Messiah, as Savior, as Lord. I pray that you pray with me this prayer. Lord Jesus, I recognize you as the promised one of God. You are majestic. You are holy. You are righteous. And yet you took on human flesh for me. And you went to the cross of Calvary to pay the sin and the debt that I owed that I could not repay on my own. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me, for rescuing me, from my sins. You paid the price. I bow my life at your feet. If you've just prayed that prayer and you've prayed it from your heart, you can have the peace that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. No more fear. It doesn't need to reign in your life and your experience. Would you reach out through our website? Let us know. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to follow up with some encouragement. Maybe, maybe you've known Jesus as Messiah, as Lord, as Savior. But you've been walking 
in a different direction. You've been ignoring his voice. You've removed yourself from his feet. This can be a moment for you to return to the feet of Jesus. Return to listening only to his voice. To acknowledging the peace that you need that comes from laying your life at his feet. I pray that you will do that. I pray that you will do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for revealing yourself as a majestic, powerful God in the person of Jesus Christ. God, there doesn't need to be confusion any longer. God, we can understand the reality of who Jesus is, and it's good news. God, thank you for what you've done through through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.